if you're speaking to someone who struggles with or denies the existence of God, sometimes it makes more sense to leapfrog past the question of the existence of God and talk specifically about Jesus. Why might this be? Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your co-host for today's episode, Chloe Langer. I'm joined here by Joe Heschmeyer from Shameless Popery and Holy Family School of Faith. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks, Chloe. This is the 33rd episode of the Catholic Podcast, and 33 is a very important number for Catholics at age 33 is when Christ died on the cross, and it's your 33rd year as well, Joe. Exactly. I'm actually about to get married, so a certain uh, cross <laughs> will be taken up as well. <laughs> I say that in the most loving way possible, of course. <laughs> That's what Catholic marriage is all about. Actually, you know, so I mean, for my 33rd mm-hmm. birthday, uh, my fiance got me a painting of Christ at 33, which is a, a fairly famous, we can include it in the show notes, yeah. it's a fairly famous painting of Jesus. Uh, but it's called Christ at 33. And it's a, a reminder that, you know, this is something, it's incarnational, right? You know, mm-hmm. you, this is someone who actually had a certain number of birthdays here on earth. Right. And, you know, like on a, a traditional Roman cassock, there are 33 buttons uh, and, and representing the 33 years of his life. So we've been talking a lot about evangelization throughout the podcast lately, but today we're going to focus on, especially um, for the 33rd episode, Christ and his role. Yeah, and specifically uh, his death and resurrection. So when and how do you talk about Jesus with atheist friends, coworkers, and neighbors? Yeah, so I think there's a temptation as Catholics to want to do it in a very orderly way. If you've got a friend who doesn't believe in Jesus, you say, okay, well, why God? Why Jesus? Why the Catholic Church? And it makes sense. It's a good structure. In fact, I'm currently, uh, just a shameless plug here, I'm doing a four-week course on that with that name. Uh, in Northeast Kansas right now. So if you are near Prince of Peace in Olathe or St. Pius X in Mission on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm, I'm teaching on, on that subject. But one of the things I pointed out is that you don't always have to go in that order. There are several reasons why it might be more effective uh, as an evangelization approach to start with the person of Jesus rather than the concept of the existence of God. And I think there are several reasons for that. Um, number one, the idea of God is abstract and hard to understand. Uh, Number two, uh, the question of the existence of God seems cold and distant. You know, logically, we can show that creation requires an uncreated creator, but there's nothing really emotionally warm about that idea, is there? Third, uh, proving the existence of God still leaves a lot of people confused as to what kind of God exists. Is this a watchmaker who just wound up the universe and let it go? Is this a God who cares about his creatures? Is this God personal or more like a concept? And now, theologically, you can answer some of those questions starting from the existence of God. You can approach it metaphysically and logically, but a lot of people uh, aren't going to come to the right answers that way. And then fourth, it leaves a lot of questions still unanswered, like what happens to us when we die? Showing that creation requires an uncreated creator doesn't show we spend eternity in heaven. Yeah, and this isn't to dismiss like facts or head knowledge, but when you're talking to someone, we always talk about like the relationship aspect of apologetics and sometimes being able to start with Christ with whom you have a relationship and a friendship and inviting them into that is a good welcoming door. Exactly. That Christianity, as Pope Benedict says, it's not just about a system or an idea, but about a person. And so if you're just talking systems and ideas, it's hard to transition that from a person. It'd be more like in a relationship approach. Do you start with 
you know, marriage is a good vocation. <laughs> or do you start with, oh, I want to marry this person. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe you discerned generically that you were called to marriage and then specifically uh, you were called to marry this person. Or maybe you discerned generically you were called to the priesthood and then specifically this diocese or whatever. Yeah. But a lot of people, it's a very invitational, individual kind of calling. So approaching with Jesus uh, does a lot of those things, as you just said. It also, it shows that God exists simply because... Of course, if Jesus is God, there's God. Uh, if Jesus rose from the dead, we now know something about the afterlife. Because, you know, atheists will regularly object that no one really knows if there's a heaven or hell because we haven't been there. But we know someone who's been there and back. And so if, if the testimony of Jesus is true, if the resurrection is true, the question about the afterlife is answered. And then it also shows us that God loves us, that he wants a relationship with us. And this is huge. It means we're not alone. It means we're not forgotten. But instead, we're loved and we're desired by God. And I think that's an insanely attractive message um, in a way that just saying, you know, there's an uncreated creator isn't. And it also, of course, shows that he's not just some distant watchmaker. So this is also, I think, the biblical model in a, a very real sense. If you look at the way the apostles approach evangelization in the New Testament, they're proclaiming the person and deeds of Jesus Christ they're not starting with a metaphysical discussion of the existence of God. And part of that's because the people they're talking to believe that there is a God or that there are gods. Right. But part of it also, I think, is, is for the reasons we just mentioned. Um, because Jesus is the answer to the question of every human heart. In the Psalms, King David prays, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. So it's a universal hunger uh, to see God. Pope Francis talks about this love um, in his Angelus address on August 11th in 2013. And he says, but what is God's love? It's not something vague, some generic feeling. God's love has a name and a face, Jesus Christ, Jesus. Love for God is made manifest in Jesus. For we cannot love air. Do we love air? Do we love all things? No, we cannot. We love people. And the person who we love is Jesus, the gift of the Father among us. Exactly. If it's just a generic... Oh, I love everyone, or uh, just kind of a concept. Mm -hmm. You know, because air, logically, we know it exists, and that we can't live without it. But we don't see it. We don't think about it most of the time. And it would be kind of crazy to talk about really having, like, a loving relationship with air. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about God, we can kind of fall into that same trap. We've shown logically he must be there. We wouldn't be able to exist at every moment, every breath we take. But he's invisible and therefore not a big part of our life. We're putting a human face that we can understand and love. Uh, that is something that was just a real gift from God. And so it's smart to, in some cases, I think, start there. But of course, that doesn't mean in every case. So I think in, in this point, I just say, figure out whether you're more comfortable talking about the existence of God or relationship with Jesus. Figure out what the other person needs and then based on your strengths and the other person's needs, maybe discern the right approach in that individual context. Right, because this isn't going to be a, oh, every time that you talk to an atheist, this is the path to take. It's going to be very personal. This brings us to one of the biggest areas for confusion for people today and what Bishop Barron calls the heresy of scientism. Can you explain what that is a little bit? Yeah, so there's a common idea that science alone gives us knowledge. And it's easy to understand why this would be. You got all these people debating politics, debating philosophy, debating religion, and it seems like we never really get anywhere. That, you know, you think your way, I think my way, and no one can really know who's right. 
On the other hand, science keeps producing more and more iPhones and, you know, technology advances. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like you really do see advances in an obvious way scientifically. And we're still having a lot of the same fights we were having 1,500 years ago right. or 5,000 years ago. And so you think, well, how can we really know anything in religion when it doesn't seem like everyone's just coming to a conclusion and moving on? That's, I think, the background for it. But it leads to this kind of ridiculous conclusion. So expressed logically, the claim would go something like this. All knowledge is scientific. Well, what's the problem with that? That's not a scientific claim. It's a mm -hmm. philosophical one. Right. And so to believe that all knowledge is scientific, you must know at least one non-scientific thing, namely this philosophical claim that all science or all knowledge is scientific. Right, which is the kickstart to it. Like you can't get to the rest of it before the philosophical claim. Exactly. And so if at least one claim that you know, that one, is non-scientific and is still something you know, then it means that the claim all knowledge is scientific isn't true. Mm -hmm. So scientism really is self-refuting. Yep. But most of the time people don't put it that coherently or that logically. So Bishop Barron, in a, a Word on Fire piece that he did about it, May 2009, he talks about the four what he calls YouTube heresies, which he says are the major heresies of our time. And they're things that he perceived just in the comment sections of his YouTube videos about Catholicism. You know, for example, I have a, a video talking about how the universe is contingent and needs a creator. And then an atheist will jump on and be like, oh, what about the Big Bang? <laughs> and he's like, okay, so you're saying there's a beginning to the entire universe, including matter and energy. That looks like you've just really proved the case here by showing that everything is contingent upon having been created. You're showing that it's all contingent, that it didn't have to be here. We didn't have to have matter or energy, so it had to have come from somewhere, under particular conditions, etc. This is all, what, like, that's what the argument from contingency is saying about the universe. It didn't have to be here, so why is it here? There has to be an uncontingent, or we would say necessary, cause. But he says when this happens, uh, it's like their eyes just glaze over. Um, you know, they, they, they just seem like it doesn't make any sense. He says, though many of my YouTube interlocutors can speak rather ably of physics or chemistry or astronomy, they're at a loss when the mode of analysis turns philosophical or metaphysical. So I think it's one of these things where if you really were to sketch out the philosophy of scientism, it's obviously wrong. And it's more that people know science works on some level. And so people who, especially people who are very smart in the area of science, of science rather, um, can be very tempted to want to approach everything that way. Mm -hmm. Just like in a courtroom, we discuss the burden of proof when it comes to examining the life of Christ. What is the burden of proof and how does scientism impact that? That's a good question. I think one of the ways scientism impacts it is because science as a discipline works really differently than does something like history. So this is kind of the pro and con, if you will, um, of starting with the case for Jesus rather than just the case for God generically. When we're talking about Jesus and the resurrection, we're talking about events in history. And historical events aren't scientific. If I were to say, you know, the Battle of New Orleans was fought on January 8th, 1815, that statement is true, but that statement isn't scientific. You can't, you know, devise some lab experiment to prove or disprove it. And that's how most of the things that you know in your life work. So how do you know these things? Well, you know them largely from the testimony of other people, the people who were there, who wrote about it shortly afterwards, etc. You rely on that evidence to come to a conclusion that, yes, it did in fact happen then. You know, there was this battle. There might be some scant physical evidence, you know, bullet holes here or there. Right. But you're not going to be able to know 
the details from just the physical evidence. You have to rely on the testimony. What's interesting to me here is that that's actually true in a less obvious way uh, for science as well. So a scientist doesn't do every scientific experiment in the world. And if you were to say, I don't trust any other scientist, I don't trust any other test results unless I've personally done them, then every scientist would have to reinvent the wheel. Right. Instead, you trust that the stuff being published is actually true, that someone really did this work. And this is actually controversial in science because right now there's kind of a crisis in what's called repeatability. So they'll go and try to repeat these studies and a lot of them, they don't come to the same conclusions yeah. a second time. So right now, the scientific community is actually being rocked by this exact thing. You can have what looked like a good experiment and then not be able to repeat the results. All of which points to the fact that even in science, you deal immensely with trust and with believing in the testimony of other people. Now, in saying that, I don't want to say trust everyone. I want to say science, in a, in a not very obvious way, history and theology in a much more obvious way require us to look at the reliability of individual witnesses and people who are, if you will, giving testimony, just like in a courtroom. I used to be a lawyer, and one of the things that has, I think, hurt the field of law in the last several years is what's called the CSI effect. And this is hotly debated, but basically, juries today, if they watch a lot of shows like CSI, expect every case to be sort of a home run on the prosecutor's side. They found this amazing piece of evidence that, you know, irrefutably ties the suspect to the crime. And so the burden of proof in these cases gets ridiculously high. Mm. And in the vast majority of cases, you're not going to have anything approaching that. Without getting too political, I would just say right now, um, with the whole debates over Justice or Judge Kavanaugh, people are asking these questions. How do we understand these cases when we're looking only at... Uh, testimonial evidence. Yeah. How do we, you know, understand the reliability of the different people? What are their motivations, etc.? Those questions are good ones to be asking um, because they really shape how we approach you know, this this whole thing. So, if you are someone who struggles with scientism, you may want to prove Jesus's resurrection like a science question, or conclude that since you can't prove the resurrection like a science question, then it didn't really happen. But the problem is, is that you're using the wrong tools. So thinking like a historian, which is what both of us have our undergrad in, and not like a rocket scientist. So with that in mind, let's start with the question, did Jesus really claim to be God? Yeah, so a lot of this is going to turn on the reliability of the Gospels. And I want to maybe put a pin in that question. I recognize that it's important, but mm -hmm. if we take the Gospels as at least basically reliable right now, we can get back to that question. It shows Jesus performing miraculous healings in his own name. Uh, it shows him even healing people on the Sabbath. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that he defends himself by declaring himself Lord of the Sabbath. Now, that's a title that would have sounded blasphemous to Jewish ears. John actually tells us even more. Uh, he says that this was why the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also called God his own father, making himself equal to God. So that's John 5.18, just explicitly saying Jesus' message was of being equal to God the Father. And in fact, later in John's gospel, we hear Jesus saying things like, I and the Father are one in John 10, 30. So now the fact that Jesus claims to have been God or claims to be God doesn't automatically prove that he is. Someone could lie about that. But it does narrow the possibilities. It means that he's not simply a philosopher, simply a moral leader. He's either much more 
uh, or much less than that. So this leads into a discussion of what's called the trilemma. And although he didn't invent this argument, C.S. Lewis famously presents on it um, and writes about it in Mere Christianity. And he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So I think it's a great argument, but I want to preempt what I think is the best response to that argument, which is that Lewis has forgotten a fourth option. So this is famously called Lord, Liar, or Lunatic. That mm-hmm. Those are the three options Lewis says we have to choose from. But I think a fair rebuttal is that there's also legend. So we might say Lord, Liar, Lunatic, Legend. How do we know that the evangelists aren't just making this all up? The short version of the response to that objection is history. That within a few decades of the earthly life of Christ, Christianity is a huge movement um, at and around the time Paul is writing and the evangelists are writing. We see that Christianity is already widespread. We know this from other sources like the Roman historian Tacitus, Mm -hmm. who talks about the great fire of Romans 64. So before you have much of a New Testament, you have a large Christian movement. These are people who in many cases were listeners to Christ or had been converted by people who were. So to say, well, maybe they're making it up requires a pretty massive conspiracy. You know, right now, if you were to say, you know, Ronald Reagan claimed to be God, and the, you know, large conservative movement is just like, oh, right, he did, I forgot about it. Slipped my mind. Yeah, that'd be kind of a ridiculous thing to have. That's not realistic. And so for them to say that he claimed to be God, he had to have actually claimed to have been God. And they all, with the exception of John, die for that as well. Right. This is another huge uh, piece in the puzzle. Is that the apostles, you can't just write them off as liars. Very briefly on this, I think one of the best arguments for the resurrection is the fact that the eyewitnesses to it are willing to die for it. If you're willing to die for a belief, to be tortured and killed, to be ostracized, and remember, if they're lying, this is blasphemy, so then they die and go to hell. If you're willing to put it all on the line for that, I assume that you're telling the truth. Now, when I've said this in the past, people say, well, what about suicide bombers? What about, you know, these jihadists or or fill in the blanks? Well, I don't think that they're intentionally saying, I don't actually believe in this religion, but I'm going to die for it. Right. Like, no, obviously, they're not deceiving us. They obviously truly believe their message or they wouldn't do these kind of insane things for it. The difference is they're believing a message that they were told by someone else. In the case of the apostles... They're believing what they themselves say they saw. They're believing their encounters with Christ, seeing the risen Christ, seeing him materialize in their room, eating with him, having conversations with him. Things that can't just be written off as delusion or hallucination or any of the other kind of objections to the resurrection. So in other words, when you have that many eyewitnesses, they basically can't have been mistaken. That An eyewitness can be wrong and frequently is. Yep. When you have that many eyewitnesses, to say that they're wrong, not just about the details, but about everything on the most important event of their life. It'd be like someone trying to tell you, you know, you didn't actually get married. 
You're like, no, I remember it pretty specifically. Mm-hmm. Maybe my memory's foggy around some of the details. But to say it didn't happen at all is insane. And to say, oh, everyone who witnessed Christ falls in this category. St. Paul, when talking to the Corinthians, talks about how there are 500 witnesses to the resurrection, many of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. But why does he mention that detail? He's inviting his readers and his listeners to fact check him. He's inviting people to look up these other witnesses. So all of that's to say, Christianity is based on eyewitness accounts and eyewitnesses who are willing to die for what they're claiming. Rarely are eyewitnesses put to that kind of test. But the fact that these ones were, and that they survived it, they they passed the test in that sense, they didn't recant, uh, really says everything that needs to be said. This also contrasts neatly with false religions. So in Mormonism, for example, you have these various seers, and all the ones who weren't uh, related to Joseph Smith directly uh, end up leaving the Mormon church. That is a pretty good counter-argument to believe. You know, they would try to start their own church, try to profit off of their, their status of seers, people who supposedly saw the golden tablets, but they're rejecting the guy they once claimed was the prophet. Christianity's not like that. Nope. Like, These people, we don't see them all starting their own churches and trying to get rich and famous off of it. They give up everything. In St. Paul's case, he was a promising student of the greatest living rabbi in Judaism. I mean, other than Jesus himself. Right, right. Gamaliel. Mm -hmm. And so he throws all that away after what he says is an encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, where, by the way, he's going to persecute Christians. So that kind of thing is just historically, like, what do you make of that unless this testimony is true. It's hard to explain why the people are behaving the way that they're behaving if really uh, they're lying and instead are just throwing away their prosperity here on earth and throwing away their salvation. And if they're duped, who duped them and how? So that's, I mean, that's the core of why I think you can trust the apostolic witness. But it also means one of the corollaries of that is you can't say this is just a legend. You can't say that they're just making it up. So that leaves us just with Lord, Liar, or Lunatic. Well, go back and read how the apostles speak of Jesus. You'll see that he appears as humble and as insightful. He understands human nature, and he presents a morality that's attractive and believable. I mean, after all, this is why people want to accept him as a great moral teacher, even if they reject his divinity, because his morality makes sense. We might struggle with it. We might find it unpleasant to have to live out. We might find it unattainable at times. But the morality checks out. It makes sense. Uh, What's more, you know, he's presented as performing public miracles of healing, including healings that can't have just been psychosomatic. He heals a man born blind. Mm -hmm. He raises two different people from the dead, etc. So then you start to say, okay, does that sound like a raving lunatic? Do we typically turn to raving lunatics for their great moral teaching? Does it sound like an arrogant deceiver who's trying to to dupe everyone, like a charlatan? Well, not really. Uh, Everything kind of makes too much sense. And moreover, going back to the apostles and their testimony, remember they lived with the guy for three years, and there were a bunch of women who followed him closely. And they came away believing that he was sinless. That's pretty bizarre if you've ever had a roommate. You know, if you've ever lived with someone, family member, roommate, even a coworker you've shared yeah. a cubicle with, yeah. you probably don't make it more than an hour before you're like, oh, you have faults. <laughs> They're very glaring. Let me count them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the apostles are very open about their own and each other's faults. Yeah, very much so. But about him, 
they all just say, no, sinless, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think in that case, and not just like about each other, but who would say that about us? In other yeah. words, like we couldn't pass this test, but Christ somehow passes it if everyone around him, at least not being sure if he was a sinner. So Lewis concludes from all of this, the quote, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So, Joe, I know one of the ways that you like to approach this conclusion from Lewis is called the biblical case for Christ. Yeah, basically, if you look at the Old Testament, you have a strong argument for Jesus's divinity and resurrection. This feels like cheating, though, when it comes to conversations with atheists, because it's like using a source to prove a source. Right. It sounds like it's like, oh, so the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true. Well, no, I'm not. I'm not really <laughs> trying to say that. But bear in mind, the Bible wasn't originally one book. Mm-hmm. We're talking about 73 different books written over many centuries, even millennia. And so the fact that it comes together kind of in the way that it does is pretty remarkable. A source I like to use in presenting this is a guy by the name of Richard Dawkins, who some of you may know is one of the leading new atheists. And he said that the Bible and Quran were the best that Bronze Age desert tribes could do. We've moved on. And even at the time, others were doing it better. Now, this is kind of a ridiculous attack for several reasons. First of all, he's totally wrong. The Bronze Age ended 1200 BC. Most of the Old Testament, none of the New Testament had been written at that time. And the Quran is from 600 or so AD. So he's off by 18 or 1900 years. Basically, the Quran is about as far away from the Bronze Age as we are from the life of Christ. So he's off by a little yeah, bit. Yeah, just a tiny bit. Uh, he's not a historian. He's a scientist who thinks he's a historian. <laughs> and, you know, logically, his argument isn't much better either. This is uh, what's called the genetic fallacy. Like, oh, you just believe that because you're a woman, or you just believe that because mm. you're old, or trying to answer not the argument, but just discredit the person. Uh, Lewis calls this bulverism, where you explain why the person holds the wrong belief without ever showing that their belief is actually wrong. So saying, oh, well, this book is from the Bronze Age, therefore we can't trust it, would be like saying, well, people thought that murder was wrong like 5,000 years ago. So, I mean, could murder really be wrong? Like, it's a bad argument, mm-hmm, right? Like, sometimes so. people got things right back in the day, sure. uh, especially foundational truths about reality. But for all of the obvious uh, incoherence of Dawkins' argument, he is tapping into something that I think we have to grant him. That, you know, Acts 4, verse 13 says, the Jewish temple authorities saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. And they wondered. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. In other words, the people that Jesus deputizes as his apostles and his eyewitnesses are common, uneducated people living in, not the Bronze Age, but living in first century Judea. These are not, for the most part, your elite. St. Paul has a great theological pedigree, but he's basically alone. So what's remarkable here is that the New Testament works as brilliantly as it does from a literary perspective. And this is hard to account for um, in light of the fact that the authors were, by both friend and foe's account, these uneducated followers of Christ, that the people giving this testimony don't seem to have been sophisticated enough to pull off the kind of elaborate hoax uh, that'd be necessary to pull off here. So let's just look at a few examples that we find in Jewish scripture to prove the point. Yeah, so if we're looking at like the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, let's talk about four. First, the book of Daniel uh, foretells that the God of heaven 
will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed during the fourth kingdom after the then reigning Babylonians. And that corresponds uh, with the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Second, uh, Micah tells us that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem and be of the tribe of Judah. And there's even a hint that the Messiah will be divine. You might remember this reading from Christmas time. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. That's Micah 5, verse 2. Now, that doesn't sound like just the birth of a new king or a, a new prophet. That sounds like something different. Someone who doesn't have like a merely human origin, but is the ancient of days. Uh, third, the prophets Malachi and Haggai both prophesied that the second temple of Jerusalem would be greater than the first temple because the Lord himself would enter it. An important detail here is the second temple is smaller and less physically impressive than the temple of Solomon. But there are these promises made through the prophets. So God says in Haggai 2, the latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former. Why? Because I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. And then Malachi says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's the beginning of Malachi 3. So there's this sense that somehow, You've got someone who is both the messenger of God and is God himself who will enter the temple. Well, Jesus fulfills this. Fourth, you've got Psalm 22. This is one I expect readers or listeners to be most uh, familiar mm -hmm. with. It depicts the Messiah as being executed by having his hands and his feet pierced, which sounds eerily like the crucifixion. A few interesting details. Without a doubt, Psalm 22 is older, probably about a thousand years older, than the invention of crucifixion. And the crucifixion is invented by the Persians, but we know, historically, it was a widely used practice by the Romans at the time of Christ. There's no dispute about that. And so listen to what Psalm 22, this is 16 to 18, says. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now this prophecy sounded so Christian that scholars at one point believed that maybe it had been a Christian insertion or that they'd changed the words to make it sound like that. But then we found an ancient Jewish scroll with the same copy, the same prophecy there. So we know that it wasn't some sort of Christian uh, mentally. So taking all of that, Jesus fulfills all of that. And he fulfills it all in ways that would have been outside merely human control. So, like, imagine for a second you wanted to make up a Messiah or to present yourself as the Jewish Messiah, even though you weren't really. I mean, could you make these prophecies about yourself? Or can you make them fulfilled in your own life? So for me, no, I, I couldn't make up being the Messiah. I wasn't born in Bethlehem. Israel still isn't under the control of Rome, and it hasn't been for many, many years. Um, the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and so all the... The facts are stacking up for me not being a very likely candidate for being the Messiah. It is probably unlikely that the government's going to start executing people by piercing their hands and feet. Yeah, or, that's true. You know, probably not going to go back to that. It's unlikely that you're going to have a crucifixion sort of death. Well, okay. That's also true of Jesus. Unless he's God. You know, a mere human can't make himself be born in this time, in this place, in this city, during this occupation, while this temple is standing, and then fulfill all these prophecies. Which means a couple things. 
Number one, it means that if the Jewish Messiah is to come, it's Jesus. Like if these prophecies are true and they mean what they say, well, the Messiah, who is God, uh, either he's coming before 70 AD or he's not coming. But second, it means that Jesus is fulfilling prophecies that we know historically uh, he did meet and that other people just don't. So that's a strong point kind of in favor of his being who he says he is and things that he couldn't have just like caused to happen. Like you can imagine some of the prophecies acting in a certain way, you know, he's going to enter Jerusalem. So you're just like, okay, well, I'll take a trip to Jerusalem. He's going to, you know, those things, fine. You could do those things. But these things were outside of his control, unless he's God. But what's crazy about it is he's not just fulfilling these obviously messianic prophecies. Uh, he's also fulfilling things that we didn't even realize were prophecies at the time. And we get this pretty explicitly on the road to Emmaus. And Luke 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, there's a strong hint there that they weren't just like, oh, well, here are the messianic prophecies. Here's how you fulfill them. But that there are all of these layers of things that in many cases they didn't even know were prophecies. And then he fulfills them just kind of as a bonus. Can you give us a specific example of one of those prophecies? Yeah. So I'd look to John 19 at the crucifixion, verses 32 to 34. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first thief and of the other who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, we've talked, we've talked about this passage in the past because of the medical details, mm -hmm. that it shows that water is not metabolizing in his stomach. It shows that he's actually dead. But John says in verse 36 there that this fulfilled the scripture, that not one of his bones would be broken. But if you go back and look in the Old Testament for an obvious messianic prophecy that says none of the Messiah's bones will be broken, you're not going to find it. It's not there. So what is John talking about? He's talking about the Passover lamb. He's saying that Jesus fulfills the requirements of the Passover lamb by not having one of his bones broken. You could execute the lamb, or kill the lamb. I'm not sure execute's the right verb there. You could kill the lamb in the way Jesus was killed and still eat it. But if you started breaking its leg, it would not be considered valid for the Passover meal. So Jesus dies on Passover by being crucified in a way that a Passover lamb could have been killed. And in fact... Uh, according to Brent Petrie's book, uh, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, mm -hmm. this is very much what it looked like when they would stick the poles in the lambs. So they would basically crucify the lambs on Passover. And that fact is something that Jesus would have witnessed, especially growing up for witnessing Passovers, and he would have known that that's how the lambs were sacrificed. Yeah, it would have been, I imagine, almost eerie as mm -hmm. a kid. Yeah. If you know, this is how I'm going to die in, you know, T minus 30 years or T minus 27 years that that there's something very uh, obviously prophetic, but even kind of grisly about mm -hmm. it. But so you have the piercing of the side of Christ and his legs not being broken. But the other thing is that the water flowing from the side of Christ ends up being another fulfillment of prophecy. In the last eight chapters of the uh, prophet Ezekiel's prophecy, it's all about the new temple, the temple that's to come. And this temple wasn't a reference to the second temple because it has these interesting supernatural properties. And one of those is that healing water flows from the side of the temple. And Jesus alludes to this applying to him. And at the piercing of his side, you've got that fulfilled. But there's yet another layer to this as well. 
So Eve is taken from the side of Christ. Yep. And the church is taken from the side of Christ. The bride of Christ is taken from Christ sleeping in death on the cross is how it's described by the church fathers. Because the water and blood uh, symbolize baptism in the Eucharist, which are the sacraments that form the church. So you have all of this stuff going on in just this seemingly kind of mundane medical detail that his side is pierced and his legs aren't broken. So all of those things, which were not required by any just ordinary reading of the Old Testament to mm -hmm. be fulfilled, we can see how they're being fulfilled. So there's kind of layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, which leads to one of a couple conclusions. Now you might conclude uh, that the person who writes this, John or the other evangelists in their works, is just a literary and theological genius who's found a way to take the whole of the Jewish tradition and set it in the context of a single human life and show all these various prophecies and literary elements. And they work like instruments in an orchestra. They all play together and they all come together in this remarkable way. You know, if you've ever watched a really good movie or a really good TV show, you can see how a director sometimes does this. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a catch here. You don't just have one director, so to speak. You don't just have one author. Um, you have here Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Jude, James, Peter, all writing their own accounts. And so if we're going to say, oh, yeah, they, they all work together. Suddenly you have this kind of cabal of literary theological geniuses, which doesn't sound anything like what we know about the people. Remember, these are the people that Richard Dawkins laughs out of the room as just being kind of these Bronze Age idiots. Well, they're not Bronze Age, but they were uneducated. And so you now have to say, well, how do you get to this level of kind of brilliance? Uh, taking the kind of raw material of just whatever, whatever theological training they might have had, it wasn't enough to put all of these things together that even the greatest rabbis of the age hadn't put together. And no other claimant uh, has ever met this burden. So I think even if you're talking to someone who isn't Jewish or isn't a believer in any part of the scriptures, you can say, well, historically we know mm -hmm. that these writings were here. We know historically that the Jewish people, which has seemingly miraculously survived when none of the other tribes in the Near East survived, and despite everyone around them constantly wanting to kill them seemingly, they had these prophecies preserved still to this day we know without a shadow of a doubt that these prophecies are much older than the birth of Christ. And we know that there's a guy who comes along and by all accounts, not just one, fulfills these prophecies. You don't have to start with saying, I think these prophecies are true. You can just say, I don't know another way of explaining how a single person comes along and fulfills these prophecies. Or how prophecies predict an event millennia in the future. Unless it is true, and he is the promised Messiah. Joe, can you lay out this case that we presented today kind of in a nutshell? Yeah, so I want to actually add a couple things we didn't go to directly, which is that historically, and we talked about this in the uh, podcast episode on the physical case for the resurrection. There's a few things I want, to, I want to compile sort of the evidence from that episode in this one. We know historically, Jesus' tomb is empty and his body is gone. We know historically, hundreds of people claim to have seen the risen Christ, they claim to have had conversations with him. They claim to have eaten with him. They claim to have seen him walk through walls. They claim that they were taught scripture by him and so forth. We know, third, that his apostles and those following him are so convinced of the truth of the message that they're willing to die for their faith. 
Fourth, we know that the initial audiences, the ones who are in the best position to fact-check this, converted in large numbers to Christianity. We're talking about Christian communities popping up all over the Roman Empire, even in Rome, even when they were trying to persecute it by killing anyone who would convert. Fifth, we know now, as we just heard, Jesus fulfills several prophecies written centuries before his birth in ways that are outside of merely human control. Sixth, we know that he performed countless miracles in public, healing the blind and even raising the dead. As St. Paul says, these things were not done in a corner. The public healings of Jesus were things that were public healings of Jesus. And seventh, we know that he claimed to be divine. So any theory, Christian or otherwise, has to account for all of that evidence. And I know of exactly one and only one theory that neatly accounts for all of it. Namely, that God cares about his people so much that he took on a human nature, that he sacrificed his life for us out of love. And that being God, the grave had no control over him. And he showed himself for who he is by rising again from the dead as he had promised. Now, I acknowledge that this theory uh, sounds implausible. You know, we're not used to someone rising from the dead. We're used to death being the last word. And maybe it's hard for us even to imagine someone loving us enough to die for us in the first place. But I want to really emphasize this is, as far as I know, the only theory that accounts for all the evidence. Beautiful. So let's close this episode in a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Catholic Podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School of Faith Institute. To find out more, or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schooloffaith.com.